Did I get taller or is this thing? I don't know. I don't know. My, my teenage boys say I'm getting shorter. Well, I don't want to have a long introduction because we have something a lot better than that before us in the Word. But I do want to take just a minute to bring you greetings from everyone in the Bethel Church in Seville. We're small, but we're like a family. We have been blessed lately with about four or five new people, and we do have one man who is Iranian, who, is, who escaped from there by walking eight days over the mountains to come out by the, not past the border guards. And he made it to Spain, and he got political asylum there, and he's looking for a job. He's not a believer, but he's not a Muslim or a practicing one anyway, and he Somebody gave him a list of evangelical churches, and he showed up, by the grace of God, at our door. And I, years ago, when we lived in the Bay Area, uh, we spent a lot of time for about two years with an Iranian family. And some of them, by the grace of God, came to know the Lord. And in my many hours spent with them, I managed to learn about just enough Farsi, which is Persian, which is the Iranian language. I learned about half a dozen phrases and words and things like that, just enough to get myself into trouble. <laughs> but when he walked in the door that day and told us where he was from, I stood there and blinked for a minute, and I was trying to do recall, you know, get that program up and running, and I was finally able to remember the, the greeting, the Persian greeting, and he lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> uh, and my wife can cook some Persian meals. So, yeah, so we're... His name is Ali, and I ask you to pray for him, that he will come to understand the gospel. He doesn't speak anything but Farsi. He's learning Spanish very slowly. I'm not learning Farsi. <laughs> He's going to have to learn Spanish. You know, he came to Spain, you have to learn Spanish. And if you come to the States, you have to learn English. And... Uh, so in Spain, that's what he's going to have to learn. I don't, I don't know if he knows any English, but I don't even try to speak to him in it because I don't want him to learn English. I want him to learn Spanish. Okay, so that's enough. The family's well, and we pray for you. We have a little prayer guide we put out. Everybody puts their prayer requests on it, and every time we have a prayer meeting, not just myself, but the other elder whose name is Lucas, he prays for all the brothers, los hermanos in San Ramon, California. So just know, I know that you love me. It's so obvious that you love all of us. But I don't know if you know how much you're loved. But you are. And I hope you don't have to take it by faith. I hope I can show it. All right, now let's get to work. I understand you're in 1 Corinthians. Is that right? How far have you gotten? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. Oh, okay. Well, we're going back to chapter 6 tonight. We're going to have a review. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 9 to 11, just three verses. The word of the Lord says, Know ye not 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we dedicate this meeting to him. You have said to us in your word that whatever we do, we should do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we meet together in his name tonight, not in the name of anyone or anything else. We know that we are just branches and he is the vine. Without him, we can do nothing. We are nothing. And so we call upon you. We confess it, our need for his presence and ministry. He promised to be with us wherever two or three are gathered together in his name as we are tonight. And we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. For the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the prophet said. And we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We do not want to rely on human wisdom. We only want to rely on those things that the Holy Spirit will show us out of the Word of God. And we ask that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified and magnified here tonight. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. Amen. There's a hymn. You know, there's a lot of good hymns in here. I don't know if you know them all. Mr. McDonald, when he taught us years back, on day one of the nine months that we spent learning from him, on day one he took the hymn book and he turned in the first class, which was about Old Testament, he turned to hymn one. This is not part of the message, by the way. And he said, today we're going to learn hymn one. And he started singing, and we all <clears throat> more or less followed along. And uh, the next hour, we had another class, and uh, he taught that also, and he said, now we're going to learn hymn two. You got the idea, don't you? Nine months. We learned a lot of hymns that year. <laughs> and uh, some of them, the music is, uh, maybe you like it more than others, you know, it's catchy or happier or something. But it's amazing if you just take the hymn book and begin to read through it, which is no substitute for the Bible. But if you begin to read the hymns, you find such a wonderful message in some of these. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Does that sound like 1 Corinthians 9-11? Such were some of you, but you are washed, sanctified, justified. Let's see. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I have sought since Jesus came into my heart. I have ceased from my wandering and going astray since Jesus came into my heart. And my sins, which are many, are all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. I shall go there to dwell in that city, I know, since Jesus came into my heart. And I am happy, so happy, as onward I go, since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy o'er my soul, like the sea billows roll, 
since Jesus came into my heart. Isn't that wonderful? I want to speak to you tonight about the fact that conversion means change. We live in a country, you live in it anyway, I'm visiting it, <laughs> but I used to live here. I'm still a citizen, so I can say we, so just cut me a little slack here. A country where it doesn't mean anything anymore to say you're a Christian or an evangelical. I might as well take the gloves off right off to start with. You all know how I am anyway. It doesn't mean anything. Because a person can say they're whatever they want to say they are. And nobody ever demands any proof. But when we read the scripture, when we read this book like in Corinthians, and you know you've already been studying it, what the Corinthians were like, what the city was like in Corinth, what the philosophy of the Corinthians, of the Greeks was. They considered themselves the most highly educated people and they were the most corrupt and morally vile people on the face of the earth. Because if you don't know this, I'm going to tell you, and don't be offended, to be a Corinthian, to be called a Corinthian was an insult that means to be called, and I'm going to say it in a nice way, a fornicator. And out on the street they say it in a lot of other ways. That's what it means to be called a Corinthian. That's what it meant back then. That's the fame that city had. And into that city one day walked the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul began to preach the Word, the Word of God. The Apostle Paul is an educated man, but he didn't go up there and show him his degrees because people don't need to see your degrees. People need to know the Word of God. The Apostle Paul was a man who was conversant in philosophy, in the great writers of that time, the classic writers of that time, the poets of different countries and ethnic groups. He knew all of those things. He didn't begin to quote that. He didn't try to prove to them what he was. He spoke to them about the gospel. He said, as you read in chapter 2, you remember what chapter 2 said? I love the book of 1 Corinthians. It says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. Just like Henry Ford. Back when he invented the Ford and the Model T and the other companies began to build up. They saw there was money in it and they began to produce their cars and the men that worked with Henry Ford and his business came to him and they said, uh, Mr. Ford, we need to make cars in other colors because uh, these others are starting to do the competition. If we just make black cars, nobody's going to buy them. They're going to go to the competition. People want green cars and red cars and Mr. Ford just looked at him. He said, we'll give them whatever color they want as long as it's black. People today, this is the way they are. People today want theater. They want you to come up and act something out. They don't want to be spoken to, preached at. Right? They, they say, don't give me a doctrinaire uh, delivery of some information. Let me have it in theater. Uh, read a novel and take some philosophical interpretation uh, from it to uplift our lives. Give us a positive, upbeat uh, give a little humor, a little comedy, uh, bring him some puppets, uh, dress up like a big clown. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing that? We're our ambassadors of Christ, he says. Can you imagine the ambassador of the United States 
or the ambassador of Spain to the United Nations jumping out there in a big clown suit and saying, hello, everyone. What kind of a way is that to represent the Most High God? If you wouldn't represent your country that way, don't try to represent Christ that way. No, sir, I'll tell you, Paul went to them and he said, I determined before he ever got there. He knew the Corinthians. Paul was an educated man. He knew how they were. He knew what the Greeks were like. He knew the fame of the city. And he knew the people. And he had just come from Athens where he stood on Mars Hill and defended Christianity and the resurrection of Christ. He knew the coldness, the intellectual coldness of the Greek heart. He knew the moral vileness of the Greek heart. But he made up his mind before he ever stood up and opened his mouth in Corinth. I determined, he said. He already knew what he was going to say. He had a plan. He had a commitment. And his plan was, I will know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what happened? When the Apostle Paul left the city of Corinth, there was something there that there wasn't before. There was a church, an assembly, a congregation, a gathering together of believers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Corinth. Paul was not a circus act that came to town and entertained a few people and then left and everybody was more or less the same. Lives changed. And that for that reason, he wrote to them here in this book that we're, this chapter that we're reading in verse 11, he says, such were some of you. This is how you were. Because a true believer, a true Christian has a past and he has a present and he has a glorious future. But he says, such were some of you. And what is he talking about? Look back at verse 9. He says, oh, the unrighteous. Don't you know about the unrighteous? Don't you know about the unrighteous? Today, churches around the world are full of unrighteous people. To them, the churches are just like political parties. It doesn't make any difference which one you're in as long as you're involved and sincere. You go to meet some kind of a social need or to meet some kind of a philosophical need or in a, in a very worldly sense, a spiritual need. It would be the same to them if it was Buddhism or Hinduism or the religion of the Native Americans, or whatever it was. You can worship a pine tree, or a fox, or a wolf, or a dolphin, or a cloud, or nirvana. It doesn't make any difference. It just happens to be in America that people go to evangelical churches. And a lot of them don't have a past, because their past is their present. And because they don't have a past, their past is their present. They have a very gloomy future. But Paul is able to write to the true believers that he knew were there in Corinth, and he says, such were some of you. I know how you were. You were fornicators. You were idolaters. I live in a country that's full of that, full of both of those. It's full of everything in here, really. Adulterers. Effeminate. Abusers of themselves with mankind, which, by the way, they weren't called gay. There's nothing gay or happy about it. And I don't care anything about being politically correct. May God be true and every man a liar. That's what I say. That's what the scripture says. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, 
revilers, extortioners, wicked and deceitful people they were. And he says, know this for sure, nobody who is like that will inherit the kingdom of God. But oh, today what we hear, oh, today what we hear, all these things can be practiced by people who are in happy fellowship in churches. Because they think the way they live from Monday to Saturday has nothing to do with where they go on Sunday. And there's never been any change on the inside. There's never been any new, any new person born. There's never been any, as we say in Spain, punto y aparte. A stopping point and a change, a period and a whole new sentence or a whole new paragraph. There's never been that. Christianity means change. True Christianity means change. True conversion means change. Don't kid yourself here tonight if you don't have a changed life. Don't kid yourself tonight. I don't care how many verses you learned. I don't care how many years you went to church. And neither does God. It doesn't matter whether I care or not. You better wake up and know this, that God doesn't care. He is not impressed by anything except the person who bows their knee and calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And that's the first prayer and the only prayer that God will answer from sinful people. The true Christian is not perfect. Paul knows that, but the true Christian is not a fornicator. A true Christian is not perfect. I'm not perfect. Adel's not perfect. Well, Adel, uh, maybe on some days, okay? You'll invite me back, right? A true Christian is not perfect, but a true Christian is not an idolater. He's not an adulterer. He's not a thief or a drunkard or a filthy talker or any of these other things that are in here and a lot of other things on other lists that are in the scriptures. True Christians are not that. True Christians are not perfect, but they're not what they were before. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, meaning I'm not what I was. Here are three phrases that describe a true Christian. And by these three phrases or these three words that are in these phrases, every person here tonight can examine himself or herself in the light of the scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit and know whether or not you have really been converted. Because conversion, I'll say it again, means change. Such were some of you, but, number one, you are washed. You are washed. A person who has not been born again, just by being born into this world, just by being conceived, by a human father and a human mother and being brought into this world as a human being, that person is spiritually dirty, spiritually filthy, unclean. Now, that doesn't particularly thrill a lot of polite society people to be told a thing like that, but it's the truth. You might as well know the truth. What are you going to go to the doctor for with a big lump in your chest if you don't want him to tell you the news and tell you the truth after he does the analysis. 
You wanted to just tell you you have a bad cold and to take some aspirin? Or you want to know the truth? Sometimes the truth sounds ugly. And sometimes the truth hurts. But knowledge of the truth about one's condition is the first step towards salvation. It's the first step toward life and peace with God. And if we sound like we hammer on this, it's because some people just don't get it. It's because you can't get to the other part, to the good part about Christianity, about salvation, and all the blessings and benefits. And like he says here, I know I shall dwell in that city one day. Oh, don't, don't you worry about that yet. First of all, let's get you saved. Don't be talking about uh, getting a get-out-of-jail-free card, a get-out-of-hell-free card. And somehow you're going to skip that square and just go to heaven. No, sir. First of all, a true Christian is a person who's been washed. You are washed. It doesn't say you will be. It says you are washed. It means you have been washed. And as a result, you are what? No, 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 don't jump ahead. Now, let me ask the children. Adults are so complicated sometimes. Go get Gina, bring the children in here. When you get out of the bathtub or the shower, what are you? Don't say wet. Clean. Clean. Well, I don't know if we were going to get past that point. Years ago, I remember we used to joke about a commercial, a detergent commercial. This was when I was 10 or 12, but I still remember it. They, they made a joke about it, and it was to pick on somebody in the room, in the group, you know, and they say, well, they brought out this new soap, and uh, the lady was going to demonstrate it on the television about the soap, you know, and so she said, okay, here's a dirty T-shirt. Here's Adel's dirty T-shirt. So said, and we're not picking on Adel. So he took his T-shirt, he put it in there with the detergent, he said, wishy-washy, 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 and he pulled it out, squeezed all the water out, and held it up and said, looks clean. Smells clean, is clean, and laid it down over here. Now let's see who I'm going to pick. Dean. So then he took a pair of Dean's socks <laughs> and put them down into the water and put the detergent in and washed them out and squeezed all the water out and said, and here they are, wishy-washy, wishy-washy, looks clean, smells clean, is clean. You passed the test. And then they went in the room and they brought out, we don't know whose this is, and see, so then you pick on somebody in the group and you say, so-and-so's diaper. And you take the person you want to pick on. They say, they took that and they put that in there. And they washed it out. Wishy-washy, wishy-washy, wishy-washy. Looks clean. Wishy-washy, wishy-washy, wishy-washy. Looks clean. Wishy-washy, wishy-washy, wishy-washy. And that was the way you did that. You know what? That's us. That's us. Forget about us. Because I already admitted it was me, and I'm going to tell you quite frankly, it's you. You're the one, just like the rest of us, that wishy-washy, wishy-washy can't make clean. Only the blood of Christ. 
Only when Jesus Christ died on the cross and that spear pierced him and that blood came out because the scripture says by, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. None. And all those bloodless sacrifices of the mass, they don't take away any sin. There's no bloodshed there. All those good works that people do, all that money they put in the offering, all that time they sing in the choir, and I'm not talking about the choir here. Don't try to read anything into this. I know people who are fine, upstanding church members for years, and they sang in the choir, and they were wonderful neighbors, but you could not tell them for one minute that they were stinky. Like my little boys used to say when it came time to change them. Phew, wee. They'd be mad at me if they heard me say that because they're all big teenagers now. But that's the way it is. Sin stinks to God. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, on the authority of God's word, that no stinky people are going to be in heaven. No dirty people are going to be in heaven. Sin is filthy. You don't see it on you. And I, when I got dressed tonight, I first I had to get all the wrinkles, you know, from travel out of the clothes. And I'm glad they provided an ironing board and an iron in there. And yes, I do know how to iron. My mother taught me that. Bless her soul. She taught me to do it. She, she had all boys until my sister came along nine years later. She wanted girls, so she taught the boys to do all the work that most people only teach their daughters, if anyone. We all learned to do all those kind of things. We had chores and we did housework. So I had to get all the wrinkles out. And then the other thing you have to do, and my wife taught me this, she said, make sure you don't have any spots on anything. Because a lot of times if she's with me, she gives me a once-over before I get up to preach. She said, comb your hair, fix your tie. You know, get that, you got a, something on you there, get that off a piece of lint or something. She gives me the last okay, you know, like the NASA crew before they go up, they get inspected, you know, I get that. How many of us are willing to take a good long look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word to see not what's on our face or our clothes, but to see what's on our heart, what's on the heart, because that's where the stain is. In, Matthew, in Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus taught a very important lesson about contamination. In Mark chapter 7, he said, in verse 18, in the middle of the verse, Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart? but into the belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. Does this sound like 1 Corinthians 6? Murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. 
And when Paul says to the Corinthians, you are washed, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a washing that takes place on the inside. Because you can wash and you can paint up cosmetically what people look at. But as an old preacher who's now with the Lord used to say, if people would pay half the attention to their hearts that they pay to their face in the mirror, just think how different it would be. You are washed, he says. A person who has not been born again has not been washed. And therefore, however religious he or she may be, that person is dirty on the inside, filthy, contaminated in their heart, as the Lord Jesus himself said here in Mark chapter 7. And for that reason, cannot go to heaven and cannot say, I shall go there to dwell in that city I know since Jesus came into my heart, because Jesus doesn't come into hearts unless he's allowed to cleanse them. He doesn't dwell in dirty hearts. You are washed, he says. Titus 3 and verse 5 speaks about the washing of regeneration. That's the same idea, the washing of regeneration. That when a person is born again, and that's what it means to be regenerated, to be born again, at the same time that person is washed. The washing of regeneration. In Revelation 1.5, when it speaks about the Lord Jesus and his coming, it says, he washed us from our sins in his blood. Some translations say he loosed us, because that word there might be more precisely translated loosed than washed. So it doesn't make any difference. If you know what washing is, when you wash something, it makes the dirt come loose out of it and go away. So the end result is the same. They're cleansed. He cleansed us from our sins in his blood. I say again, it is necessary to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens when a person recognizes the first step, recognizes, and that's what we call that conviction. When, the, when you allow yourself the luxury and the blessing of agreeing with the Holy Spirit, what he's trying to tell you through the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell you through the Scripture something about yourself. And you have to stop fighting it and stop thinking you know more than God does about it and accept what the Holy Spirit has to say Believe it, deal with it as a fact, an established fact, and you have to go forward from there. And if this is the way things are, then something has to be done. And that something is you have to be washed. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ died on the cross at Calvary, to wash away our sins. That's why he did it. Whoever has not been washed is not a believer. And that religion, whatever it is that he might have, only covers up his sin. Religion will do that, you know. It'll put tunics on people. It'll give them doctor of divinity degrees. And it'll give them crystal cathedrals. And it'll give them a lot of things. But it won't change anything on the inside. Religion dresses up the outside. True Christianity. Christ, when he comes into a life, he changes the inside. And that's where the problem is, inside. And that's what he deals with. You have been washed. We've got to move on. The second word is sanctified. He says, you have been sanctified or you are sanctified. 
And that is just as far away from the, what we see around us today as evangelical Christianity as the first word. The last thing you would call some of these people who profess to be Christians today is saints. That's the last thing you would call them. Do you know how many times the word Christian appears in the Bible? Who knows? Once. Why has the word that the unbelieving used to refer to them on the streets of Antioch become the only word that most people know? Now, I'm not saying Christian is a bad word. But I'm saying if you look into the New Testament, if you pay attention when you read, you notice that the Holy Spirit uses other words a lot more than that word Christian. If you understand the meaning of the word Christian, Christ one, one who follows Christ, and if it really means that and works out that way, that's okay. But in the New Testament, they're called what? Brethren, believers, disciples, saints. They're called the elect, the faithful, the beloved. And those words, all of those words, add a great fullness of meaning to what Christianity is that you don't have in the simple word Christian. And I'm not going to deal with those tonight because I've got to finish on time. We're just going to stick to the word saint. A true Christian is a saint. A saint. Oh, now the, the Catholic Church doesn't teach it that way. It teaches that if you uh, do a lot of good works in your life and maybe you did a miracle... And while you were living or you were used by God to do some miraculous thing or wonderful thing, and then you die, and then the church convenes uh, the cardinals, and they have an investigation, and they call it the process of, um, oh, now I'm stuck because I only know how to say it in Spanish, beatificación. Anyway, uh, they investigate you for sainthood. I don't know what it is. My English is, is it beautification? All right. And then if, a, if you pass the test, the exam, then they declare you a saint. But you're already dead. In the Bible, when it talks about saints, it's talking about living people. We used to have a brother in the church whose name was Antonio in the church up north. His, it was, his name was Antonio. And in Spain, uh, San Antonio is very popular among the people, the saint, you know, the Catholic saint. And so we were talking somewhere one morning, and I said, did you know I, I had a cup of coffee with San Antonio this morning? And the person I just said, ha, ha, get out of here. I said, no, really, I had a cup of coffee with him, and he talked to me. No. You see, he, he was on a different wavelength. He didn't know about San Antonio that I knew about. St. Anthony. He didn't know about him. But he was a person who was saved. You are sanctified. It doesn't say you will be sanctified. Now, you will be, because sanctification, we're not going to go into that tonight either. You just have to wait. Adel will have to teach you that or somebody later on. Sanctification has a past, a present, and a future. You are sanctified. You were sanctified. The moment you were saved, you were set apart. It means to be set apart for special use. You are being sanctified. That's progressive sanctification, first is the positional sanctification, then the progressive sanctification is what's happening now. He's setting us apart and he's making us holier and purer and cleaner and less worldly as we go along. 
Well, that, that's supposed to describe a Christian anyway. And then there is perfect sanctification, which is when we reach heaven and glory. And there we won't have the flesh anymore. Isn't that going to be wonderful? No more flesh, no more inner struggle, no more world. Perfect holiness there in the presence of God, past, present, and future. But he says, you are sanctified. The New Testament believer is a saint. And when they write in the epistles, quite often you'll see it, like in 1 Corinthians, for example, or in Philippians, for example. They refer to the believers as saints right off at the beginning of the epistle. Not as Christians, which they are, but as saints, which they also are. When I was in Jerusalem, one of those times, I think it was during the time that we lived there for a short period of time in Israel, and we went to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, where they are working, they're dedicating themselves to preparing everything for the temple, for the next temple. Because they say every day that uh, the Jewish people go without a temple is a stain upon their history. And so they're working, and they showed us, they built the, I mean, made the garments for the priests. They showed them to us. They had the golden candlestick or the, the frame for it, the wood frame for it made, or it's about this high. They had it made. I saw it. I stood right there by it. They didn't have it covered with gold yet. They do now, but back then in 97, they didn't because they didn't have enough gold. And, and so they explained all these different things to us. And then they brought out some instruments, uh, bowls and cups that they made for the new temple. And they were in gold. And she brought one over to us. And she said, here, would you like to hold it? And I kind of looked at her uncertainly. And she said, go ahead. It, it hasn't been sanctified yet. The priest hasn't sanctified it yet, so any of us can touch it. But, of course, once it's been sanctified, it can only be used in the temple for the Lord. You got that? Is the light coming on? Sanctified. Not to be handled by the world. Not to be immersed in the world. You have been set apart for special use by God. Sanctified. Now, some of the old brethren in the past uh, taught wonderful lessons about the truth of our position as, as being sanctified, that we are sanctified. We have been. It's our position in Christ. Wonderful truth. And we all need to get hold of that truth. It's something that can't be changed. Our position, how God sees us in Christ. But some people have abused that, and they have said that even though a person might have a problem with uh, adultery or fornication, or he might be a drunkard, as some men who were preachers in some areas actually died drunkards. And they said, but he was a believer because he had his position in Christ, which to them had nothing to do with his practice. They were two different things. But that's not what he says here. He says, you were drunkards before. Not that you are now. You were before, not now. You are sanctified now. Pure, holy, clean, different, set apart for special use. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Is there someone here tonight who's naming the name of Christ, calling yourself a Christian, but allowing yourself the luxury of practicing things that you would never do in God's presence? 
The Lord knows them that are his, the first part of the verse says. But don't ever just quote that as if it were a great mystery. Quote the second part of the verse, too. Don't take away from the word of God. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. My friend, you have no more power to depart from iniquity than a worm has to fly until you have Christ in your heart, in your life. That's the only way. Religion can't help you depart from iniquity. No, some of them might help you go through a 21-day plan to stop smoking, but you can go down to any medical clinic and get that. Stopping smoking isn't the same thing as departing from iniquity. They can even give you drugs now to help you stop drinking, but they can't take that practice of iniquity out of your heart and out of your life. Only Christ can do that. Only he can make you a new person. You have been sanctified. And the unconverted person, because Christianity means change, conversion means change, the unconverted person is unholy, worldly, carnal. Don't talk to me about carnal Christians, because Romans chapter 8 makes it very clear that there are two kinds of people. In verse 1, it talks about those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And verse 8 speaks about them that are in the flesh, you see, because those who are in the flesh are not in Christ, and those who are in Christ are not in the flesh. And I'm trying to mix all of that together and get confused and philosophize about it, because it's very simple. First Corinthians 6. 19 and 20 says, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's the position of the person who has been truly converted. You're sanctified. You've been set apart for God. And you young men and women need to remember this, and the older ones too. If you've been sanctified, you better watch who you touch and who you let touch you. You better remember that your body is sanctified. It belongs to God, and your members are to be presented to him as instruments of righteousness. Your members, that means your lips. You want me to keep going? We on the same page? Your body, your members, Christ is interested in it. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you see it. You see, this is the problem today. This is what we're talking about. There's a whole version of Christianity being preached, and people are being deceived into believing that they're going to heaven when they don't have a changed life. They have not been washed. They are not saints. They have not been sanctified. There's nothing holy or set apart to God about them. But yet they believe for some strange reason that they're going to go to heaven because they had a warm feeling one day or something. Maybe they spilled their tea on themselves. I don't know what it was. My friend, if you don't know tonight for sure that you've been washed and you've been sanctified, you better get that straight with God because the Christian has a past that's full of sin, but he doesn't have a present that's full of sin. He's not perfect, but he's washed and sanctified. Washed and sanctified and justified. You see? You are justified. He doesn't say, you will be justified one day. He says, you are justified. That's something that God does, and he doesn't do it in the nervous system. He does it in heaven. God declares righteous the person who believes on Christ. Romans 4 and verse 5. Romans 4 is the great Bible chapter 
on the doctrine of justification by faith. The great chapter. We're going to have to read a little bit. I want to make sure you get this. Romans 5, verse 4, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you try to work and do works for salvation, when I know so many religions that do that, and so many people, fine people, nice people, morally, comparatively speaking, upstanding people, they're working so hard trying to be good, and they're counting on all of that to get them to heaven. And we run into this all the time in Spain. We run into people at the door, and we start talking to them about uh, what the Bible says about sin. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that they're a sinner. They say, yo pecador, yo pecador, si yo no mato, si, si yo no mato, yo, yo no adultero, yo no voy con mujeres, yo no. They say, I don't kill anybody. I don't run, all, run around with women. How, how am I going to be a sinner? And some of you here tonight might be saying the same thing. You might be counting on the fact that what you haven't done, I ain't done this and I ain't done that. And you can always look around and find somebody who's done more and worser, as they say in some places, than you. But you'll never find anybody on this planet who can compare themselves with Jesus Christ. And unless you have his righteousness, you cannot go to heaven. There are no unwashed people going to heaven. There are no unsanctified people worldly, carnal as goats, people who are going to heaven. True believers are sanctified, and true believers are justified. They've been declared righteous by God with the effect that they live lives of righteousness. We're not going to go into that now either. If you want to, you go read 1 John chapter 3, and you'll see what he says there, that the one who is born of God practices righteousness, and the one who is of the devil practices sin. That's what it means. The practical effect in our lives of being declared righteous is that we practice righteousness. It's necessary to be declared righteous because the unsaved person, the natural man and woman, before they come to faith in Christ, that person is a condemned, a guilty and condemned sinner. Romans 2 makes it plain. Romans 1 makes it plain. Verse 32 who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. It's always easy to point the finger, isn't it? To see somebody who's done more. But the question is, not, is somebody a worse sinner than I am? The question is, do I have the righteousness of Christ? Because without that, my friend, there is no entrance into heaven. It is necessary to be washed by the blood of Christ. It is necessary to be sanctified, to be set apart and indwelt by the Spirit of God and made the temple of God, be made holy and fit for heaven. It is necessary to be justified, to be declared by the Father to have the righteousness of Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness and he puts that to your account. Like somebody taking money and putting it into your bank account. You understand that part, don't you? Well, you see, that's what we need spiritually. God has to take the righteousness of Christ, that infinite, perfect, beautiful righteousness of Christ, and he puts that into the account of that poor, wretched person 
who recognizes that he or she is a sinner in need of God's help and salvation. I don't have anything. That old hymn, we don't sing that one anymore either. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You can't bring anything in your hands to God. He's not going to call you and choose you and save you because you're an attractive person or because you're an intelligent person or because you have a charming personality or because you're more sincere than your neighbor. He's going to save you because you come to him as a sinner who deserves eternal punishment, who cannot wash himself. You cannot sanctify yourself. You cannot justify yourself, even though you might have tried. And you say, Lord, save me. Acts 13, 38 and 39 says, all who believe are justified. All who believe are justified. That's the key. Romans 4 and verse 5 says, to him who worketh not, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. See, that's not what religion teaches. Religion teaches that you try to make yourself attractive to God by being religious and works and sacraments. But the scripture says God justifies the ungodly. To the one who does not work, but believes on God who justifies the ungodly, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That means he's justified. God declares him righteous. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, if you don't have that tonight, don't you even think about going home and putting your head on that pillow until you get peace with God. Christianity, true Christianity means change. God brings about that change. You can't bring it about, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can repent of your sin and call upon him to save you. He can do it. He does the washing, he does the sanctifying, and he does the justifying. But he will not force it on you. God gave you a will, and he respects that will, as sad as that might be. Because with that will of yours, you can decide to say no and miss all of God's blessings and an eternity of bliss and glory. Or with that will, you can say, I'm the one that Jesus died for. And then you'll be able to sing, what a wonderful change, because that's what happens when you get saved. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I have sought since Jesus came into my heart. He wants to come into your heart tonight. Will you open the door and let him in? I pray that you will. Let's pray. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful word of God and for how clear you make things to us in it, how simple you make things to us in it. We thank you that salvation is not complicated. And we thank you that salvation doesn't depend on us or anything that we could do, but on what Christ did for us on the cross at Calvary. We thank you for sending him down to wash us from our sins. We thank you for sending him down to make saints out of unholy, ungodly sinners. We thank you for sending him down to justify the ungodly who believe and trust in God. And we pray for those who need to take that step tonight, that they will recognize their condition 
and place their faith in the only one who can wash them, sanctify them, and justify them. May it be so, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.